Welcome to the Untangling Web3 podcast, your go-to hub to learn insights and the latest developments in the wild and wonderful world of Web3. I'm Alec Burns. I'm Jack Davis. Tune in each week as we navigate and explore the rapidly emerging landscape of the Web3 technologies, projects, and ideas that are shaping the future of the internet. We'll be talking to the best and brightest in the industry to keep uncovering insights. So that hopefully we can all learn together on our journey to untangle Web3. Welcome to another episode of the Untangling Web3 podcast. So, Jack, hey, how you doing? Hey, Alec. Yeah, very well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, the last episode was very fun, uh, quite exciting. So I'm looking forward to talking about another topic. Yeah, we've made a good start, I think. And now uh, on to the next chapter, on to the next uh, thing we can try and demystify a little bit in Web3. Yeah, so last week we covered blockchain like the general history, what it is, how it can be used and some of the core concepts. And this week we're tackling the big topic of tokens, I guess. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of hype around tokens right now. So this, this should be quite an interesting one. Yeah, this is, uh, this is one of the, the first things that comes up as a question. Uh, tokens and this concept of tokenization that kind of really go hand in hand with any any discussion you get into about Web3. So this is a good one for instance to uh, tackle next, I think. Yeah, like my mom's a regular touch point for these podcasts now. And NFTs is everywhere. Like in the, even in the news, like it's pretty mainstream talking about NFTs, which is a specific type of token that we'll obviously go into a lot of detail later. And you try to explain the concept of an NFT and it's quite difficult to explain the concept. And even like understand like tangibly what that means like an everyday person who maybe isn't in like the digital world yeah and and it's it's also another one of those quite broad topics with lots of different subcategories of tokens and we've already started talking about nfts as one of those um so yeah maybe we can we can, we'll, we we'll, we'll start by giving a broad brush strokes understanding and then uh go into dig into some of the details about those different kinds of tokens maybe yeah, well, you gave me um, some stick last week for the, the layman definition. So why don't you start with the layman's definition this week? Okay, I, I'll, I'll try and actually be concise um, this week. So um, tokenization, that's the word we tend to, to use when talking about tokens. Tokenization generally refers to taking some kind of asset, something of value, and it could be any kind of value, whether that's already physical or digital, and representing that in a digital form so that can be easily tracked, transferred, um, and, and efficiently used by whatever other, other systems you want. So, yeah, it can apply to virtually anything, um, but it's just about digital representation of, of some kind of asset. Wow, that was incredibly concise. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great definition of, of what a token is. And 
I think obviously, well, we're a Web3 podcast. So probably what we're going to be talking about is blockchain-based tokens. And as Jack kind of said there, a token is a, is a physical or, or digital ap- asset representing value or specific attributes. So a blockchain-based token is just representation of those assets using blockchain technology, where blockchain is the medium for representing ownership and also the medium for exchanging that ownership. And, you know, like like Jack mentioned, it can make uh, facilitate trade easier, record transactions, you know, streamline payments and all these kind of things. And that's the, the primary use case as, as to why you'd use blockchain as a medium to represent tokens. Yeah, I think um, when we talk about it, it's a digital representation of either physical or digital assets. And really blockchain came around, you know, with starting with Bitcoin and then later Ethereum and other, other blockchains. They kind of they brought a new way of tokenizing digital assets, but more broadly, they also help us to tokenize physical assets as well. So they're kind of an all-purpose tool for this like this idea of tokenization in general. Um, and maybe it's worth you know to capture some of that discussion around the physical versus digital assets. Maybe we can talk a little bit around the the history of tokenization and money in general. And I know you have a you have some some interesting insights on this, Alec. If you want to maybe talk us through that. Yeah, I'm a historian at heart, so I love this stuff. But you're totally right. I mean, the concept of tokens is not a new one, even if it has gotten like a lot of publicity recently because of like blockchain-based tokens, and NFTs, and all this hype that's coming out of the woodworks. Um, but can you guess when some of the earliest tokens um, were around, Jack, or have been discovered by archaeologists? So that should give you a rough kind of order of magnitude. <laughs> okay, archaeologists, or maybe let's say a few thousand years or something. Is that, is that the right ballpark? Uh, not, I mean, yeah, that's not that's not far off. So 9,000 BC was some of the earliest tokens that, that we found and kind of discovered. It was in Mesopotamia. You know, everything is always Mesopotamia when it goes to that those orders of magnitude of uh, ancient history. And, you know, they, they basically use small clay idols to represent cereals, grains, cattle. And they this, this societies or these civilizations use this for like 5,000 years, basically, consistently. And... I mean, the, the use case is kind of obvious. It, well, I think this is why it's quite important to go back to where tokens kind of de- de- derive from originally. It's not convenient to take cattle and, you know, tons of grain to market to potentially sell or exchange them. It's far easier if you have like a trusted kind of mechanism for doing so to have a small clay idol that people trust in and know you know represents the ownership of that grain to take that to market and then exchange ownership you know for and get payment for something and that person can then claim the grain from like a, a, a central repository or something like this mm. so that is the primary idea that you're using as a almost a medium of exchange something more efficient uh that can yeah. be used as a medium of exchange as opposed to the things that you're you're actually trying to buy right as opposed to just straight up barter barter for different goods and services yeah exactly like it's a more efficient way of representing and exchanging value no one wants to be looking around you know tons of grain with them when they can just have a token that represents it and store it somewhere off chain and i think that analogy is going to make a lot of sense when we start to talk about assets that are represented on blockchains as well Mm. um can you guess why something called the, the roman token was invented as a, as a kind of an alternative to roman currency the roman token um was it something to do with oh i don't know um trying to tokenize local currencies of places that uh, the roman empire conquered or something well maybe i'm completely off there 
Uh, so I mean, yeah, kind of off. So like, basically, Ro Roman currency had the emperor's face on, and you couldn't use the emperor's face for nefarious activities. However, you want to define mm. that. Um, so they created a Roman token that was an alternative to currency that could be used for all these nefarious activities, which is quite interesting because this is like some of the applications where Bitcoin kind of historically or kind of I guess publicly people think tend to think this is how Bitcoin is used, which is you know as we're now seeing not the case with more and more utility kind of coming into these spaces it's so funny to see the history kind of repeats itself in certain ways yeah that, that is interesting i mean hopefully we don't have the same kind of fall of the roman empire for bitcoin and blockchain <laughs> but <laughs> hopefully history doesn't repeat itself completely in that sense yeah i mean we're becoming a history podcast rather than a web3 podcast yeah. well i mean maybe to add a bit more to that as well because so the ones the ones i'm familiar with the kind of early um monetary assets let's call them um were all these kind of they were essentially commodities and things or um either commodities or other maybe even more inefficient things so the one i, I you, you hear quite often referred to is that i think they're called rye stones which were on one of these kind of pacific islands and there were these huge heavy limestone kind of discs which were used um very infrequently i think to um as a medium of exchange for, for large transfers of value like things like um how you'd uh, how you claim ownership of a, of a new house or something um in these communities and then you also have things like uh, cowrie shells so using uh, another physical commodity in shells and then you have other examples in more recent history i think to do with using metals um and obviously gold mm. um being kind of even more recent than that you know in, in the in the 20th century as something that was obviously used as a, a medium of exchange so i guess these are all these are kind of primarily physical things that are mm. in some sense tokens, but not quite in the way that we were describing tokenization for blockchain and Web3, right? Because we're, we're talking about digital representations and obviously carry shells and rye stones weren't, weren't digital in any sense, really. <laughs> yeah, I think and it kind of blows my mind to think of the alternatives before that, you know, the barter society before standardized currency came out. And like, how do you change a, a chicken to cows if I'm a chicken farmer and you're you're a cow farmer? Like, how does that work? I just can't even imagine. But all what of this kind of- Chicken or the cow? Is that the question you're asking? It's there? chicken farmer, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, how do you kind of easily facilitate facilitate trade in a barter society so you kind of have like that's where currency kind of came came about like to kind of uh, i guess make the exchange of goods and services more efficient by creating what standard units of value that was universally accepted but it's really important that you have a central um kind of point of trust that determines that and everyone can kind of you know trust in that that central point of value which I, how do you implement that like imagine being the first person to implement the idea of coinage i mean to be a nerd it was back in lydia like a long time ago but crazy yeah and i think that's an interesting point right that you're relying on this being recognized by some central authority um to be used effectively as currency or, or, or an exchange of value i think to kind of bring it to closer to the modern day so and, and a discussion of digital tokens so to my knowledge the earliest example or kind of mainstream example of digital tokenization was used in in the stock exchange in in kind of the 1970s where um and you'll hear this this phrase also dematerialization where they were initially you know trading using physical stock and, and bond certificates so you had to be 
you had to you know, physically have one of these certificates to um, uh, that, that showed a claim of ownership over over your stocks or bonds or whatever assets were being traded, and then they moved it to uh, a digital system where you could put these into digital order books. You could represent these physical certificates in a digital form in the stock exchange, and that kind of, as you were talking about, increased the efficiency with which you could exchange them because no longer do you have to make sure the right papers in the right in the right people's mm. hands. You can use these these digital systems to much more effectively and efficiently um, execute the trade. So I think that that is, as far as I'm aware, that's kind of where digital tokenization first became kind of a mainstream idea. Yeah, and I think to tie this back into the Web three, that is obviously the, the the primary goal of this podcast is the tokens. The concept of tokens is not new. The whole point is to to represent goods and services and maybe even access and rights in a more efficient way and kind of a more efficient to exchange way as well and blockchain was the kind of the natural evolution of that because it's the most efficient way to exchange peer-to-peer for example and it's the gold standard for auditability and ownership so i think that's how all of this relates to web3 um yeah yeah i think kind of tokens are in one sense, the the fundamental unit or the medium of exchange for Web3. And as we said, starting with Bitcoin, it has its own kind of native, let's say, t- token, the Bitcoins themselves, which are used to, um, you know, for payment um, or, 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 or to uh, make transactions in Bitcoin. And then, you, you know, there were actually very early examples of, of token systems built on top of Bitcoin. So they were actually called colored coins, I think was one of the mm-hmm. first examples where you take one of these native tokens and you add a little bit of extra meaning to them. You, you kind of color them um, so they can yeah. represent another form of uh, value, which doesn't necessarily have to be digital because obviously Bitcoin is an example of a, a digitally native token, but it can be then used to represent any kind of asset on top. And then you'll, you've kind of seen from say 2015, 16 onwards, other platforms like Ethereum have really popularized the idea of using blockchains as a base layer to build um, uh, new token systems on top that can represent anything on. And that's where we, that's where the conversation kind of leads to NFTs and things, I think. Mm. So, yeah, I think if I was to relate this, these kind of this, this blockchain based tokens to Web3, there's, there's two key principles for me. One is ownership. Like, how do I provably say that I own something? And when, when I talk about ownership, I think traditionally that's been about like, um, you know, goods. How do, I, how do I prove that I own this physical good? But more and more we're seeing things like credentials. Who am I? Like specifically, do I own this degree? Like, is this profile for me? And I think as we kind of move more and more into Web3, this is going to become a big area for, for blockchain-based tokens is, is kind of credentialing people, less around like the kind of the, the tangible things that you can physically own in real life, but more around social currency. Who are you? Like what, you know, to take it back to kind of gaming, you game quite a bit, surely. Do you have, do you have, have you ever used skin, like bought, have you ever bought skins in games? Yeah, I have, I have for sure, yeah. I think that's one of the best ways to talk about NFTs a bit later. It's like if you bought a skin, you understand the value of owning an NFT, basically. And maybe I'll go into a bit more detail on that. And I think the second principle is around the peer-to-peer economy. It's going to create like new exchange models, like having blockchain-based tokens, more efficient mechanisms for, for exchanging those things that you can own. 
Yeah, and I think we've exactly right. We've seen that principle play out in many different things. You know, um, one good example is kind of tokenization of, of real estate things or of, um, you know, uh, corporate shares in a similar way to might have been done on the on the stock exchange. But now Web3 is allowing people to do that with a little bit less friction outside um, some of the, you know, in some sense, trading tokens was a kind of gated um, uh, paradigm before you you had to be, you know, on the floor of the stock exchange to be doing some of these things. Now, Web3 is, is enabling a much more peer-to-peer version of that where, you know, you have fewer intermediate intermediaries required to um to, to facil- facilitate that kind of interaction it's all you can all be transparently recorded um and mediated via the blockchain and then we have as we discussed kind of last up last time the blockchain has its own secure infrastructure behind it that, that helps people trust the token systems you build then on top of the blockchain so it's kind of just imp- it's in many ways it's just improving on um the digital tokens that we had uh, prior to 2009 really yeah exactly and i think when we're talking about physical tokens you talk about like monarchs that were kind of the central point of trust and everyone trusted in in, in the currency and they bought into that and eventually create social trust whereas in in these kind of blockchain based tokens now you, you to an extent you trust in the technology and i think you do need that social kind of adoption of it obviously that's where a lot of the value comes from it's not just in the technology it's also in the kind of the social trust in that and the confidence in that system you know Bitcoin at first obviously wasn't mm. adopted super heavily, but as it kind of progressed, the technology didn't change too much. Well, it, it, it shouldn't have changed too much, but it's the fact that socially we tended to trust more and more and it kind of proved how stable it was. It proved how kind of um, resistant it was to attacks and all these kind of things. It's the social confidence in that that's kind of built up the value over time. Yeah, I mean, it's also maybe worth thinking about like what are the what are the concrete benefits? Because I've t- we talked a little bit about like improving on stock exchange trading, but that's not really the domain of most people in general. You know, people aren't necessarily that worried about how efficiently you can trade things on on, on the stock exchange. So, you know, what are the kind of tangible benefits for tokenizing other forms of value, in your opinion? Like, what what other forms of value do you think that are uh, you know offer the most kind of potential for tokenization as well? I think a good tangible example is any kind of item in which you care about provenance. So like you could talk about kind of high-end goods like a watch or something like that. You want to know how many owners um, has that watch had in its lifetime, is it? Can you actually like trace it all the way back to the early um, kind of the, the original kind of creation of that watch from like, I don't know, Amiga? And that's that's what you mean by provenance, right? I think is the the tracing back yeah. where something originated or something. Sorry, yeah, I should have explained that term. So I think provenance is kind of just the history of an item. It's probably one of the best ways I'd say. So like a, 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 what we tend to say is like um, source to product or some, something like that. And that's the term that we tend to use. So yeah, one good example of how we can use tokenization is that how you actually know, you can kind of um, comfortably know the entire history of a product's ownership, for example. But also if we think kind of in terms of like, I don't know, you can even talk about like tokenizing meals and things like that. So maybe we'll talk about why you'd want to tokenize meals uh, later day. But you can think of like the entire supply chain of all the different items of that food, all the data being included immutably in that food that you then own, that you can then redeem and use for utility. And I've got a good use case I want to talk about later that kind of yeah. uses that a little bit. Well, I like that because I think what you're talking about is what people will often refer to as almost like a digital twin. So that the token 
in this sense, is, is a digital twin, a digital representation of some physical asset in the supply chain, like your um, like your your watch, or maybe uh, your 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 packet of salmon that you pick up in, in the supermarket. And then blockchain is allowing you not only to to easily verify the the history, but um, also you know have some more accountability between the parties that are involved in in creating that the provenance of that product, right? Yeah, and it's it's interesting. It kind of comes back to the um what data is stored on chain because like the digital twin itself the raw data everything that say is that packet of salmon as you just said isn't going to be on chain there might be off chain data that's a more efficient way of storing it but you reference all that data on chain to kind of immutably prove that that data is you know has the the kind of the problems that we said it has for example Mm. yeah and i think like for me there's a real tangible benefit in that because going to some extreme cases you know you have um you can have big failures in supply chains that cause massive downstream problems mm-hmm. um you know when when a building collapses or um when you know there's all the the kind of scandals around the use of sweatshops in the production of fast fashion and things like that and, and they cause significant harm have being able to tokenize the products themselves um is something that is helping to combat some of those issues am i right yeah yeah i mean consumers care as like consumers i mean us too like we care more and more about what who kind of who are the actors involved in making the products that we're buying now this is like something that we really do care about but the information isn't always transparent it's not always easy to attain and even when you do attain it say if i buy you know a can of coke and coke says that uh, all of this is great and everything's fine. How do I trust that, you know, Coke isn't just going to lie because they obviously have a reason to lie. They want me to think that it's all fine. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of applications for blockchain-based tokens to kind of, you know, improve improve the trust in, 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 cons- in consumer relations. For a big example is this plastic packaging tax that's recently come in as part of like, the UK crackdown on like making new virgin plastics. They've said that you get a, a tax kind of re- redemption if you reuse plastic from, you have to prove the provenance of that plastic. You can't just say, yeah, this bottle that I've recently made has 30% plastic in it. You have to prove the entire history of the previous plastic that goes into that. And I think a lot of people are looking at blockchain to kind of provide that long-term provenance. Or you think about like, you gotta think about long-term of these these kind of potential solutions as well. Plastic has like a, a lifespan of like 50 to 100 years or something like that. And you know, mm. blockchain hopefully has the potential to kind of facilitate that long-term longevity. Yeah, it's an interesting example of plastic because I think that that's an example of plastic bottles of where you have maybe even more benefits of Web3 potentially can, can be combined with the basic provenance. So once you have your digital twin or tokenized version of your bottle, not only do you get to track it until it's used, but then you might introduce something like micropayments to incentivize it being recycled. I know there's um there's a, a, a deposit return scheme in Scotland. I think it's either just been implemented or is about to be implemented where you can get something like 20p back as a consumer for every uh, plastic bottle you recycle so that's an example of a kind of micro incentive to to, to improve the um uh, the kind of carbon footprint of, of these plastics um which could also be mediated by blockchain you know blockchain is a great platform for micropayments and maybe that's a future avenue to kind of tie up some of these benefits in web3 as well 
I mean, I love that. Yeah, like being able to say like the entire history of the, the product you're buying, you know how it's been recycled, who's been involved in that, what incentives, you know, if someone's kind of reclaimed it and reused it, like as a consumer, I would love to have that knowledge. And I think when you're talking about all these different data sources and data inputs as blockchain, makes a lot of sense there you have all these various actors who don't necessarily trust one another coming together you could use the blockchain as a means to kind of facilitate those interactions and in, in a kind of trusted basis um but yeah i think we've covered a lot there i think we realize there's a lot more we can cover but it's, it's really exciting that even in the first half of this we've talked about so many different use cases already but that might be a good uh, time to take a break <music> Okay, so we've talked a little bit about what tokens are and what tokenization is in generally about how we can create these digital versions of physical and, and, and digital assets. Um, I think maybe it's worth we turn to our, our friend ChatGPT to see if if it has any other opinions or if we've, we've kind of uh, covered the, the key points well. What do you think? Please stop referring to ChatGPT as our friend. It's creepy. Um, if we don't refer but... to it as our friend, what are we going to do when it takes over? That's what I want to, that's what I want to know. Okay, fine. I mean, this is the bit that my mom likes the most. She says she finds this bit the most digestible, which is like a bit of a put down. <laughs> it's a bit of a put down. So I think this is mostly for her. Um, but yeah, so I asked ChatGPT to um, explain tokenization to my mom. And it actually came up with quite a big definition. So we're going to have to break this down a little bit. So it said, a crypto token is like a digital version of a coin or ticket that exists on the internet. It represents something of value or has a particular purpose, like using it to buy goods, services, or even having a say in how a digital community is run. So I, I think we covered that pretty well. I think we spent 20 minutes like saying that, but. Yeah, I think it's interesting it mentions tickets. We didn't mention tickets so much, but that's a nice example of a, a physical real world thing that we, we, we're used to, that we're now more used to in the last kind of 20 years. Um, having a digital version of like our plane ticket, right? That's a good example of that, yeah. I think. I think when we speak about use cases a bit later, let's talk about tickets, because I see a lot of applications to mm. of tickets to, to blockchain, you know, especially on the kind of the um, the scalping aspect and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, okay, so I think we covered that part pretty well. So the second part of the definition, it says, these tokens live on a special digital networks called blockchains, which make sure they are secure, transparent, and can be easily tracked. Just like you keep your money in a wallet, you keep these tokens in a digital wallet, which lets you store, send, or receive them safely. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a little bit about blockchain, right? And from the previous episodes, I think it's clear how blockchains make these things a little bit more secure, right? Having a transparent model of the underlying infrastructure that we base these tokens on, rather than just them just existing in a central repository in one company, let's say. Um, so I think I think that's... That's something we've definitely covered, but maybe it's this idea of um, of wallets and how you how you actually use these in practice is maybe another another new topic that ChatGPT has introduced here. Yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing. I think we covered most of that apart from the digital wallets. It's quite complicated to imagine how you actually own something that is referenced on the blockchain. And this is, we are 100, I hate doing this. We do this all the time. We're 100% going to have an entire episode about digital wallets and how they work. But I am doing that. We're going to go into more detail on that later. But I think yeah, digital wallets is effectively how you prove 
ownership of something that's referenced on a blockchain. So, you know, I think when we talk about NFTs, you say that you own some art that is on the blockchain, a, a token that represents ownership of that art. And in your digital wallet, which is just an, an application on your phone, it will show like the JPEG, the actual image of that digital art. But really, I mean, what the wallet is the kind of the primary purpose of the wallet in my mind is it, it proves ownership typically through um, actually owning the keys that correspond to, to the, the, the token that's referenced on the blockchain. I think that's quite a simple way of putting it, which you know I'm very good at, Jack. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good, uh, good way of describing it. I think one way you can think about digital wallets is, yeah, I'll show, I'll show my, uh, my allegiance to Apple here as a fanboy, but if, you, you, if you've used something like uh, an Apple, Apple wallet, or I think Google have a similar thing in, in the Android phones, um, you have your, your your credit and debit cards in there. You might have your plane ticket in there, your um, club card memberships for a supermarket, for example. That's an example of a digital wallet. But everything you own on, and, and have represented in that wallet is very much in some kind of walled garden where each individual issuer of your, your bank card, your, your ticket, um, is still very much in control of the data and you can't do very much with it it's other than just redeeming the ticket or or spending um or using the card to spend in in the shops you don't have too many controls about what you can do you can't for example directly uh give your plane ticket to someone else on a secondary market for example whereas digital wallets in the blockchain crypto web 3 world are essentially just giving you a bit more control over what you can do um with those assets and with that comes this idea that you said of being able to prove independently of those those third parties um that you actually do own and control um, those assets yeah that's a great summary and like i said we'll, we'll go into more detail on that at a later date so the final part of this long-winded definition of tokenization by jack's friend chat gpt is crypto tokens are managed by something called smart contracts which are like digital rule books that automatically ensure the tokens are used correctly, securely, and according to their intended purposes, making it easier for people to trust and use them in various online transactions. We didn't even think to talk about smart contracts, so I think we should. No, yeah, hundred percent. So, I mean, why don't you why don't you give us your kind of overview of what what smart contracts are? I'll, I'll give you the tough job this week for that. <laughs> you love putting me in this. Um, smart contracts really simply i'd say uh digital forms of traditional pen and paper contracts that are stored and typically executed on blockchains and this has the added value of you know immutability and transparency i think i don't know how big a problem it is but you know i've always struggled to understand how if i get a contract um, i make a contract and say you know jack it's paper-based contract say jack you sign there and, you know, five years down the line, I sue you because obviously you, you've pretended that contract doesn't exist or you've changed the terms of that contract because that's who you are, Jack. Um, how do we prove at the, how do we prove, you know, five years before that the terms on this paper-based copy of what I own so, hold somewhere are the same terms that you saw and signed? Like, I have no idea how that's proved in a court of law. It's, it's crazy to me. Mm. Well, tell me what you really think of me, Alec. I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, I think... Uh... I think kind of generally it's it, smart contracts are a way of just encoding some kind of logic, some business logic um, or some some rules to do with the transfer or, or management of, of these tokenized assets. And 
um, in many cases, these blockchain platforms allow you to to kind of execute that logic to, to maintain things. And I think I'd actually, I might actually push back on ChatGPT a little bit here because it's kind of assuming that um, you need this, this smart contract paradigm for tokens to exist. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, one thing we've omitted to talk about a little bit is that whenever you have tokens, you tend to have an issuer or you want a credible issuer, okay? Because you don't want, well, I don't want you, uh, for example, Alec, to issue my, um, my, my, my season ticket, right? Because you have no authority to, as far as I can tell. Um, you have no authority, so you... Jackie Weaver. <laughs> well, I, I actually did not expect to ever have Jackie Weaver. No, that's another friend of the podcast, Jackie Weaver. Maybe we'll get her on one day. Share um, Jackie Weaver. <laughs> Uh, maybe we should see what Jackie thinks of uh, Web three, but yeah, um, I think I think the ish, the role of the issuer in tokens is is crucial, and smart contracts are a great way to allow an issuer to codify these this rule set around um, what these tokens may may be and, and how they're allowed to be used. But it's probably I would call it more programmability that is the interesting thing, because it's just ways of allowing more functionality that the issuer may or may not have to be. Um, directly involved in every time. So rather than having to go to the issuer to do every single piece of the of, of the logic, it might allow them, for instance, to let you sell on directly and not be involved in that process. Um, but they're still in, involved in the issuance and making, and, and, and again, back to your point about provenance, you always want to, to, to check the history of that, that token to make sure it was issued by a credible um, mm. uh, you know, authority, essentially. Yeah. I yeah, I think um, it's all about the, the trust paradigm. Who are you trusting in? And if you've got an issuer with fairly simple, you know, tokens that, you know, a good example is cash. You don't need, cash can be considered a token and you can have digital forms of cash. You don't need a smart contract necessarily every time to kind of run that. You can just have a central yeah. issuer and then they kind of, yeah, it's quite simple. But there are a lot of applications and in my mind, particularly exciting applications that come from smart contracts as well. I think a really cool way of understanding how a smart contract individually could be used is like a good example is Kickstarter. You know, Kickstarter just brings lots of people together to fund crowdfund projects. So I set up a fund, say, I don't know, I want Jack to meet Jackie Weaver and I'm going to sponsor Jack's trip to find Jackie Weaver. But it costs a lot of money. Jackie Weaver is very far away because she's living the high life right now in the Bahamas riding that high. And she, she has a um, high appearance fee I hear as well. <laughs> I mean, you're a big fan, so you would know these things. So I start a Kickstarter project and I get loads of people on that platform to, you know, all put in. But Kickstarter charges a fee for that. And they don't really do that much apart from kind of connecting people and facilitating the, the transfers and stuff. So it'd be fairly easy for me to set up a smart contract, put it on the blockchain, specify that, you know, I need £100 total. And for that £100, if I get 10 investors that each give me £10 and they all put in, I'll promise them, you know, I don't know, returns on that investment. So for some reason, you meeting Jackie Weaver gets them return on their investment. No idea why. And in the smart contract, I specify those terms. If in one year they haven't received um, £10 plus the 10% that they've been promised on top of that, then something happens. Maybe I have to put an asset up against it, like my house, because mm. I'm so desperate for you to meet her. 
Um, and a smart contract facilitates that very easy. Everyone can trust in the technology, trust in the smart contract. I could implement systems like have all of the investors take a vote after one year to see if they're happy and everything goes ahead as normal or if they can take my house and things like that. And I think that's a, that's a good example of removing unnecessary intermediaries using smart mm. contracts. That all sounds great, Alec. But I mean, the flaw in your plan is that you're you're a millennial. So how can you, you know, stake your house? You clearly don't own a house. Um, yeah, but I think w one interesting thing you actually mentioned Ouch. there, right? Is <laughs> sorry, sorry, you know, just to self-deprecate as well. Um, I you you kind of mentioned this idea, you know, maybe inadvertently of investment with uh, expectation of returns. And that kind of brings in, you know, that sounds a little bit like what we call a security potentially under 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 different uh, legal regulations. And one thing we haven't touched on today, because I think it will take many episodes to cover each individually, but there are lots of different types of tokens. We've talked mm. about it broadly, but, you know, this covers uh, traditional types of token like securities. Um, cryptocurrencies or, or blockchain native tokens like bitcoin it can cover um those non uh the kind of non-monetary assets like the, the things in the supply chain um and it can also you know be all sorts of things like things just used for exchange or things called utility tokens so there are lots of different categories that i think it's not worth trying to drill down into all of them right now but maybe one area we should kind of touch on is the distinction between what we call fungible and non-fungible tokens because you've already mentioned non-fungible so i feel well, like we owe it to, to to the audience to describe a bit a bit about what we mean there yeah we also owe it to emma who's in the background saying stop talking about these things <laughs> get to some more content <laughs> yeah it's too interesting so, right and uh, we're having too much fun i feel like we're making this podcast for ourselves um yeah so fungibility i think that is probably one of the defining characteristics that that's maybe yeah well i guess defines tokens in the blockchain space so fungibility complicated word is is defined as the uniqueness or interchangeability with other tokens of the same type uh, equal value and identical properties so i think in my mind the easiest example to talk about this is cash so if I have, you know, a, a one pound coin, I know that that is set the same, has the identical value and properties to your one pound coin, Jack. So we would define that as a fungible token because, you know, I can have yeah. 5,000 pounds and all those 5,000 individual pound coins are tokens, but they're fungible tokens because, you know, for all intents and purposes, they they are the same, basically. Mm. And I guess because they're dematerialized into paper and... Um and coins or even you know in the case of cash or, or just a digital form in in kind of uh, bank account money then yeah that's that's part of the the fungibility of them is that they're all effectively equal um in how you can use them um and i think maybe i would just add to that that fungibility as i'm as i'm aware is is very much a legal concept um because you can have money your money could be in different states where maybe it isn't as exchangeable, right? If it, if if funds are seized as as the as proceeds of a legal activity, then in a sense that those those funds aren't as uh, have the same value at that point in time as the money in our bank accounts. But as a property of the system as a, as a whole, you would still say that fiat money and, and currency is fungible for the, for the properties you mentioned. Yeah, and I think I, I was kind of when I was reading about this, I was trying to contending with 
different sources. And some sources argued that, you know, that the cash note that I have, the 20 pound, well, that has a, a unique serial number. So is that truly unique? Like someone could be, I don't know, so like the FBI could use that to trace, you know, illicit activity or something like that. So in, in a way, it's unique. And I think at, mm. at a high level, and I don't know about the, the legal aspects you were talking about, Jack, but I think at a high level, it's for like all intents and purposes, they have the same yeah. value and properties. There might be like, you know, the serial number is slightly different, but my £20 equals your £20. And that is quite convenient because we can trust that. You know, we have this um, the standard kind of representation that we can use for, you know, exchange of commerce. Yeah, I 100% agree that, that, that for all intents and purposes is the, the, the best way to put it. It's, um, you know, on average, will your £10 be worth the same in a shop as my £10? That's what we mean by fungibility. And that can apply to many of these other token types that we, we just kind of uh, name dropped very briefly there. And obviously, other examples would be Bitcoin, Ethereum, um, loyalty points might be a good one. These are all kind of examples of you know fungible mm. tokens that that are blockchain based. Um, and then we have the other one, the the big one, the kind of the thing that's got a lot of a uh, hype and sensation going for it right now: non fungible tokens or NFTs. Yeah, and you know you, you've done the hard work in defining fungible tokens. So uh, non fungible is essentially the opposite, where you know, every token is very much unique in some sense. So they're distinguishable from one another and they will have some, their value will can, can fluctuate um, wildly depending on, you know, uh, the mysterious forces of the market and, and how much one person is willing to value one token um, over the other. So, you know, non-fungible tokens are one of the things that Ironically, in my opinion, because I don't think they're quite as interesting as some of the fungible tokens um, you can get, but they're one of the things that popularized blockchain and Web3 in the minds of um, the mainstream. I think it kind of caught the attention because you had some of these uh, digital artworks being minted, we say, as as these non-fungible tokens and then sold for eye-watering amounts of money, not necessarily you know, sold on again for the same amounts uh, a few years later, but they're one of the first things that kind of captured the imagination. And that's kind of, I think digital artwork is a great way to understand what NFTs are mm. because all art is subjective and, you know, each piece might be valued by the, you know, in the eye of the beholder. And that's how, where, where, where it gets its value. And they're very much not interchangeable um, mm. with one another, you know, two pieces, even from the same artist are typically valued wildly differently in traditional yeah. art. So yeah, I think I think that's a good way to understand it, even though even if it's not the most interesting use of NFTs, you know. Mm. What well, I was going to say, so you're an, uh, an NFT naysayer. You, you think the fungible tokens are the way? Is this going to be a big division between us? <laughs> I'm an NFT naysayer in the context of what's made them popular in this kind of digital artwork world. 100%. Okay, we're on the same page then. Because I find NFTs extremely exciting because of what I think they can and will be used for. Like you say, all the board apes and all this kind of stuff has sensationalized and popularized them. But I think what we're seeing more and more is the utility that NFTs and uniqueness that is so important to the blockchain. I mean, the blockchain is one of the best ways to prove uniqueness. That's why I find so exciting about it. But to come back to the example earlier, you've bought gaming skins before in game, right? I have, yeah, yeah. But that, that was that's going to be my question. So are they, in what sense are they fungible or non-fungible would you say oh no 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 that's i'm not coming to the point of fungibility and non-fungibility yet i think okay. that nfts in that particular context 
I mean, I think that the value of, say, gaming skins in, in that context defines what the value of NFTs will bring yeah. in the coming years. There's there's two aspects in my mind. There's one, there's the, the social currency, the flex, to say, you know, I look good in this skin. I don't know what game you're playing. Maybe it's some, like, armor that, that is um, kind of uh, no, particularly shiny or something like that. And there's a social currency to that. There's also the utility. You get benefits in-game for that. And I really do think that that is going to expand to real day life. Like it's, you know, how you, you know, how I define you, how I find out about you. So I go on your social media profile and you have like details on there. I honestly think in the future, I will go to your Web3 wallet to, to understand who you are and you will own NFTs. You will own NFTs that relate to, albums of artists that relate to art that you're interested in that relate to tickets you've been to and that is how you will define yourself and it's how i will define you i really think mm. this idea of social currency in the future is extremely important and i think it's going to be one of the reasons that nfts you know really do become big i think they're expected the nft markets expect to reach 220 billion by 2030 and it's not just going to be these bored ape nfts it's going to be more and more about the utility they can provide like the credentialing the identity yeah, I think I think that's uh, 100%. I agree with that's that's the way things are going to go. Um, but you talked a lot about kind of the gaming use case there, because I know you're excited uh, as an avid gamer. But you know, what is is that the most interesting use case to you, or is there any are there any others that you think are particularly interesting and, and have more potential than that? Maybe. I think like I think crowdsourcing is going to be a big one. I think like maybe you can put into context of in the context of this podcast so you know we want to imagine that you know me jack and emma we want to go big and we want some liquidity typically it's quite hard to get there you have to go to investors it's like very hard to kind of get to the market engage properly so imagine that we were to create an nft for you know this episode episode three of the untangling web3 podcast i create 10 f 10 nfts and we sell them. I mean, the only people that are probably going to buy it are my mom, maybe Jack's mom, maybe Emma's mom. They'll be the three people that buy it. But in the smart contract within that NFT, it says that you'll get 1% royalties for anything that this episode generates in the future and forever. And you also get, you know, early access to events, future episodes. You can speak with me and Jack. And then my mom would love that. Um, so we get, you know, the liquidity. But we also get the social engagement, you know, for them to take those NFTs and go out there and say, look, you know, I own this NFT. It's like kind of self-perpetuating marketing that they do for us. And they gain, you know, the social currency to say, I'm investing in this small star, I'm investing in my son. Um, so it's mm. the social currency that I've talked about, but also the utility, the access, to the early events, the royalties, the episodes. And I think, you know, that can be applied in a lot of instances to benefit, you know, both the kind of the person or the individuals that want to kickstart projects, but also the investors and the people that care about investing in these projects. Yeah, that, I think royalty sharing is a massive, uh, a massive kind of benefit, beneficial use case of, of tokens in general, right? Because you have all these problems around how do creators monetize more effectively and, you know, people will use other people's work under the, the kind of the, the the creative licenses, but there aren't particularly good ways to monetize um, or, or, or for the original creators to make a lot of money out of that. So I think that's a, that's a really good one. Yeah, and it applies to like any kind of artist, albums, things like that. I mean, if who's your favorite band, Jack? Oh, uh, Kings of Leon, let's say. 
Really? Wow, that's surprising. Um, so Kings of Leon say uh, they're going to NFT one of the first ever albums, and you can be an owner of that. And you know that you get to meet the, in, in the contract defining the NFT. You get to meet them once a year, go to their albums, get early access to this. And if you don't think about the royalties aspect, would you be interested in that? Even just to say, prove that you're a Kings of Leon fan. Well, Alec, I'm going to shock you. And I thought this was right. And I've just double checked. The Kings of Leon actually have done an NFT of one of their albums. Really? The ones. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was lucky actually that I said them. Nice. Um, I wonder what I wonder what they put into the the actual kind of properties of the NFT. So I, yeah, I am kind of imagining that it's quite basic. It just proves you know you own some NFT. And it's about the social currency. But if they added all the utility we're talking about, this kind of voting rights. We haven't even spoken about voting rights. But imagine being able to like distribute the the voting rights of some kind of art amongst the owners and kind of implement that within the token like that opens up a whole new avenue for tokens i think you're 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 clearly good at predicting the future or the past actually in this case but i think so it looks like they have you know included different levels of uh of 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 rights that these nfts confer on you i think they have said you get access to specific content for some of these NFTs and backstage um, mm. kind of privileges. So yeah, I think looks like you're on the money, unless you knew about it already. But yeah, I know I said Kings of Leon, so yeah, you you're, you, you got off scot free. It's, it's cold reading. I really knew that you were a Kings of Leon fan straight away. I did all the background research. And I think like this kind of applies also. I saw something about um, house splitting. You know, you own a house. And if so, you know, I own, well, I don't, as Jack has kindly pointed out, I do not own a house, but hypothetically, imagine I do own a house that's worth a hundred grand for whatever reason. No, that's not a good price for a house, but whatever, it might be in Wales. Um, you can tell also, you haven't been on the, looking on the housing market recently, clearly. <laughs> and suddenly I come into debt and I can't pay my mortgage. You know, most people have to sell the house, but that's obviously not ideal. You no longer have a house to live in. It's very tedious. What if you could, mm-hmm. you know, NFT your house, sell 10% of the house to pay off your debt and continue living in 90% of the house. I mean, again, it creates liquidity, it allows people to invest, and you don't have to go through the whole process of selling the entire house, which is tedious. Yeah, I think I think you've just kind of hit on the nail on the head there with like, it's a good way of making very illiquid assets liquid and, get, and gaining access to the market, what, uh, providing access to those assets to the wider market, and then also releasing equity for yourself. I think it's a great use case for that. Yeah, well, I've talked a lot about my ideal use cases. Um, why don't you give us yours, Jack? Okay, so I'll have to think of a different one so that people don't think our opinions are fungible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can't yeah, laugh at you. Just laugh at a joke then. Sorry. <laughs> so um, I'll, I'll be very, I'll be very brief. But this, this is one that's personal to me, and we've mentioned ticketing already. So I think, I think it's a great, is a great um, industry that can be disrupted by digital tokenization so when i was younger much younger um I, i'm a liverpool fan unfortunately at the minute and for the 2006 fa cup final one of the most famous games ever uh you know gerard scored two late screamers so that was an incredible game and uh, i only found out years later that my parents had bought me a ticket to go to the game um, so i should have mm. been there watching but I don't know if you remember, recall this, but there was a, there was a theft of, of, of a postal van, right? Back, back at the time, I think it was, I don't know where exactly the, the van was, but someone stole, you know, hijacked a van, stole the contents. And on that van was my ticket and, and thousands of other tickets to the, uh, oh my to, to God. the game. You're not joking about this. 
No, not not even joking. This is true. So it's traumatic. Gonna... <laughs> yeah, and and they didn't tell me two years later because it was such an amazing game, and I, I should have been there. But this this kind of shows the vulnerability of ticketing and, and other other systems to you know the, just by dint of them being physical, that they, they are at risk from, from you know various things as basal as just as just theft by 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 someone. So obviously you can improve on that by by digitizing and tokenizing tickets because then you wouldn't rely on on the physical counterpart. You could you could have you know you could you could have a you could just rely on the digital version. And back in two thousand and six, this wasn't really a possibility. It's much better now with normal digital token systems or normal ticketing systems that we're used to. Mm. But what blockchain can add, kind of on top of that, is then a, a more secure secondary market for those. So as I mentioned if I have a ticket and I can't go anymore, I still rely on going back through the ticketing platform and hoping that they can resell it for me. Whereas I, I might prefer just to sell it on uh, myself independently. So they don't take a, take a big cut of, of, of the resale fee um, as they might often do. And, and, and for the person buying the secondary tickets, you know, they have to, they have to go through the, the central ticketing service to be, to, to mm. trust that it is the correct ticket. Whereas you can do this in a much more peer to peer way. If you're using a blockchain to, trace that provenance back to the original issuer and you don't you know involve that original um uh, that issue in every step of the resale process so i think tickets are a, a a really exciting use case and maybe can save other people from the same heartache i had uh when i, when I was a kid <laughs> that's such a sob story i think yeah like i guess you know to you could use smart contracts as well to implement royalties on scalping fees so that as people if people you know the, what's the classic scalper they come in they buy super low instantly and then they resell for a lot i mean the artist could implement a resale fee on top of that so if someone does resell the tickets they get five percent back and you know actually monetize mm. scalpers to an extent definitely yeah for sure no, that's a good one i like that use case thank you um so yeah i think we've covered a lot and i think maybe just as a very final thought on tokens you know we've been very positive about them but um, there are there are kind of some concerns, and I guess by the very nature of tokenization being a broad uh, a broad topic, there being so many different types of digital assets and, and, and different classes of digital tokens that you, you can have. I think one of the big um, issues at the minute is is the lack of regulatory clarity on a lot of blockchain based tokens. So I don't know if you've seen recently in the news, but this is even affecting companies as large as Coinbase, right? I think Coinbase and the, the SEC, um, Securities and Exchange Commission in America, are kind of having almost a public battle that they're, that they're waging over the definitions of these assets. So it's very much not a, a, a clear, clear cut issue at the minute. There are big companies who are still struggling to understand what regulations even apply to digital tokens. So, you know, do you have any thoughts on that and, and the kind of other issues around it? I mean, yeah, I've seen some of it. I've seen them um, kind of, yeah, in, in, in the US government, in the Senate, speaking about these things. And there is just no clarity. Like, it, it's very confusing. I don't know who's more confused, the, the SEC or Coinbase. But I've watched some of those, um, some of those, well, I don't know, the, the debates or hearings is probably the, the correct term. And I just come out of it having no idea what's going on. Like, I think I understand it before. And like they ask the same question, like, is this a security, for example, or is it this? And they just give such, you kind of... Um, ill-defined answers or kind of vague answers but i don't know i think my opinion is that there i assume there's a lot of existing law that defines how these well defines how these things should be defined and i don't know if we necessarily need to retrofit that law to that or we can just reuse it 
Yeah, I, I agree. I think it does seem like lots of existing laws should apply in theory. And then you're, we're also seeing other regulations passed, like in, in the EU, I think the, the it's called the Mika um, regulations. Um, they, they, they've either passed very recently or, or kind of got through to a late stage um, uh, in, in the EU voting process. So, yeah, I think it's just it's just something to be uh, conscious of that it's it's still an emerging topic and there's not complete clarity in any one jurisdiction really, but you know mm. it's certainly not across jurisdictions on what each of these token types mean. So I think it's uh, it's worth bearing that in mind whenever you're you're looking into the, the concept of tokenization generally. Well, thanks for the, the doom and gloom on my uh, my happy NFT predictions and hope for the future. Healthy dose of realism from someone who uh, lost their tickets in in, <laughs> in, a, in a postal uh, robbery. So. I think the show would come f- full circle if we found out that I was the one that robbed that van. <laughs> but yeah, we, we wouldn't carry it. on with this podcast ever. So. <laughs> so yeah, to kind of to caveat Jack's doom and gloom, I think that the key message from this episode is that. Tokens generally offer a lot of utility and it's all about representing value in a more seamless and efficient way for for kind of also for exchanging that value. So blockchain based tokens was the natural evolution of of that because it represents one of the most efficient ways to exchange and represent value. Um, And I think, yeah, that's a good place to maybe end end this episode. I know Jack has a lot of interesting use cases for micropayments. So this should be an exciting one. And I can see how happy he is right now just thinking about it. Yeah, I'll finally get to let loose on all the the weird and wacky things you can do with micropayments. So uh, looking forward to that. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web3, produced by Emma Camilleri. Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions, and comments on social media. And be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web3. The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.